So let me proclaim the word of the Lord to you this morning. Uh, This is the final sermon in a series of sermons uh, that began back at Christmas time. The presenting problem, as it were, was the fact that in this day and age, it seems like most people believe that God is absent, that God is oblivious to what's going on in the world, that God is unnecessary, uh, that, that he's not paying attention, that God doesn't exist, that God is dead. You fill in the blank. There are ways that people have expressed their belief that God has no role to play in our lives. And unfortunately, that has a way of creeping into the church as well, the prevailing Attitudes of the culture around us often influence how we believe and what we think and how we act. And so the sermon series, talking about conversations with God, which is another word for prayer, but the conversations with God are the way, perhaps the most important way that we believers have of reminding ourselves that God is present that he is attentive to what's going on in the world and in our lives, that he is necessarily, he is the only one that is necessary, that he is the loving Savior who enters into our lives and transforms our lives and builds us into a community of believers and that that is available to the entire world. If we're not praying people, then we are going to fall prey to the belief that God isn't necessary anymore. And so this whole sermon series has been for the purpose of doing what uh, one person described as the pastor's main function. That is to be a person who prays and a person who teaches others how to pray. And so this has been in part my attempt to teach our congregation, to remind our congregation of how important it is to pray. Uh, prayer is a two-way conversation, and you're able to see me there on the screens, and you can hear me. Uh, in order to avoid the feedback loop that is part of Zoom and all of that, Mike has turned off my ability to hear you. So I, I see you, I, at least everybody from Heidi over to Tony, um, but I can't hear you. So you may laugh, you may say amen, and unfortunately, I won't hear that. So this means you've got to wave hankies and run through the aisles and, and do other physical things to express what <laughs> I'm just kidding. But um, just just know that this is a, a, a kind of a one-way conversation, but that our prayer with God is obviously a two-way conversation. So let's drop into uh, one of the great conversations that Jesus had with his disciples. Um, Drop in on the upper room at the end of the very first Easter Sunday. Drop into a conversation about what is perhaps the most unbelievably good news known to humankind. You can find this story at in uh, Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. 
He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they, were, while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. That's as close as Jesus gets to saying, I told you so. <laughs> this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And let's stop there for a moment. The passage begins by saying, while they were still talking about this, this is obviously the continuation of a story that began earlier in this chapter. It was the story of the uh, couple on the road to Emmaus who were talking about all the things that had been happening in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, Jesus, unbeknownst to them, comes up and enters into that conversation. And when they get to the end of their journey and they get to their home in Emmaus, their eyes are opened as Jesus has dinner with them and breaks the bread at the table. They see Jesus, after having a day-long conversation with him, they see Jesus with their own eyes, but then he disappears. And then they run back to Jerusalem as quickly as they could through the night. And they get back there and they meet with the rest of the disciples in the upper room. And it's there that they hear for the first time the story about how Simon Peter had also had a, an encounter with Jesus. So here you have it. The disciples on the road to Emmaus had seen Jesus in the flesh, resurrected Peter had seen Jesus in the flesh, but now Jesus appears to all of them there in the upper room. And it says that in their joy and their amazement, they weren't able to see or to believe. They weren't able to believe that they saw Jesus. It's a strange phrase. Joy and amazement are words that uh, indicate that they recognize that this is Jesus. This is the resurrected Jesus. This is their best friend and Savior and Lord back in the flesh. They're able to talk to them. But even despite their joy and amazement, they just can't believe it. It's another way of saying, I suppose, I, I see it, but I just can't believe it. Or this is just too good to be true. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had a moment where you see something, but you just can't believe that you're seeing it. It seems to be something so extraordinary that it's not humanly possible. It's probably a bit of what they were feeling. Jesus, in the course of this conversation in the upper room, tries several times to assure them that what they are seeing is really happening, that this isn't too good to be true. It's actually happening. First, he says, look at my hands and my feet, inviting them to see the marks of the crucifixion that were peculiar to him of the people that were in that room. This really happened, he said. I was really dead, and now I'm alive. Then he says, give me something to eat, knowing that the 
they would have recognized that ghosts can't eat food, and so therefore this would be evidence that Jesus is not a ghost. He's really there in flesh and blood in the room. Give me something to eat. And finally, after everything else seems to have uh, fallen on blind eyes and deaf ears, he tells them everything that had been forecasted, everything that had been prophesied about him in Scripture, goes back through that whole litany of Old Testament passages, the Psalms, the prophets, Moses, all of these indicators that Jesus would die and then be raised from the dead. He's the only one in the entire history of the world who fits that prophetic description. And so he's trying to, trying to get them to recognize the fact that he's really there. This really happened just the way it, it happened. And I suppose if we had found Jesus's miracles and his teaching uh, amazing and maybe more than a bit hard to believe, then imagine what it would have been like to see Jesus in the flesh, the flesh resurrected bodily. The disciples, despite the eyewitness accounts of seeing Jesus, despite the long sermon of Jesus's Old Testament litany of, of prophetic passages, Despite all of the things that Jesus has said to them and has shown to them, they're still struggling to make sense of all of this. Which brings us to verse 45. Then he opened their minds. He opened their minds. An aha moment, perhaps, when they, for the first time, get a glimpse of what the past three years has been about, really what the entire course of human history has been about. Let's begin, re, re, continue reading this beginning with verse 45. Then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are the witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Verses 46 through 49 are the content of what Jesus says in verse 45. He opened their minds so that they would be able to understand the scripture. And what he proceeds to tell them in verse 46 through 49, that's the content of what he poured into those newly opened minds. It's the unbelievably good news the gospel, in a nutshell, if all you had in your Bible were these verses, that would be enough. That would be the story of Jesus. That would be the story of what God has been doing from the very be beginning of time. This was what God had been planning all along, which would accomplish his goal, his plan, and that is to complete the human race, to perfect the human race, to bring about his kingdom as he has always desired. 
So let's break this this gospel in a nutshell, this unbelievably good news. Let's break it down into four points. First, it is the unbelievably good news about a Messiah who will suffer and die before being resurrected on the third day. It's the unbelievably good news about a Messiah who will suffer and die before being resurrected on the third day. We live in a culture which is probably best described as an action-adventure movie. Uh, Perhaps you've never seen one, but it's probably hard to avoid in this culture. Uh, Action-adventure movies are a dime a dozen. They are the cultural story which has trained us to confront evil with overwhelming force. It's, it's how we do global politics with nuclear threats and deterrence. It's, it's vengeance where somebody does something to you, you do it right back to them. That's the culture in which we live. That's the model that has been presented to us from the, our, our earliest days. But God defeats evil not by taking an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth or meeting violence with more overwhelming violence. Instead, God allows evil to do its worst and then bests it with his resurrection power. Jesus could have called on 10,000 angels. Jesus could have worked a miracle even from the cross that would have decimated all the powers of Jerusalem and the Roman army. But that's not how God meets evil. He allows evil to do its worst. He allows the human race to nail him to a tree. And then he bests that power, that power of evil with his own resurrection power, his new life power. We, of course, are the embodiment of evil that caused Jesus to be nailed to the cross. Every single last human being was there at the cross that day. We and our evil has has been what caused Christ's death. The second truth that Jesus tells to his disciples, though, the second unbelievably good news is that God meets any evil not with condemnation or vengeance, but with resurrection power in the form of forgiveness of sins in exchange for repentance. Hear that. It is the unbelievably good news that God meets my evil not with condemnation or vengeance, but with resurrection power in the form of forgiveness of sins in exchange for repentance. Forgiveness is God's refusal to return evil for evil. That's my favorite working definition of what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is merely the refusal to meet evil with evil, to return evil for evil. And so forgiveness begins as God's refusal to return evil for evil. And then he proclaims that and offers it to every last evil one of us. This good news of salvation by grace through faith is for all people, no matter what, 
no matter who. I am the last one who deserves the grace of God, but he invites the worst of sinners to receive this gracious absolution. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins is the point of Jesus's mission. If you want to know why Jesus came, it was to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Amen? Repentance means coming back home. It means being welcomed back just as lavishly as in the prodigal son parable. Repentance means coming back home. It's asking God and others for forgiveness for what we have done. Forgiveness is what we offer to others when they, have, when they repent of their sins against us. These are the essence of what God is doing, and it's been the essence of what God has been doing from the very dawn of time. Repentance and forgiveness are the things that are most universally necessary in every human life. They're the means to an intimacy with God and with others that is the, the goal, the purpose of what life is all about. The unbelievably good news that God meets my evil, God meets your evil, not with condemnation or vigilance, but with resurrection power in the form of forgiveness of sins in exchange for repentance. The third thing Jesus says to them is that it's the unbelievably good news about being eyewitnesses to the amazing grace of God. The unbelievably good news about being eyewitnesses to the amazing grace of God. Our role is to experience this salvation ourselves and to bear witness to it everywhere we go, every day of our lives. Now, a witness isn't only uh, the person who knows the facts, right? We may know the answers. We may know the facts. But if we haven't experienced the reality of that, then we're really not a witness. A witness is a person who has tasted and see that the Lord, seen that the Lord is good. A witness is a person who was blind but now sees. A, a witness is a person who was lame but now walks. A witness is a leper who is now clean and restored to his community and his family. A witness is one who was caught in adultery and is now forgiven. A witness is one who was possessed by demons, but now is free. We have experienced the mercy, the forgiveness of God in exchange for our repentance. We are therefore eyewitnesses to the grace of God. Finally, it's the unbelievably good news about the Father's promise. The Father's promise. Jesus said that he is going to send what his father promised. You, you already read a part of this verse in the responsive reading at the beginning of the service. The father promised the Holy Spirit. In Joel chapter 2, he says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. 
even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. This is an all-inclusive promise. It doesn't mean if we're children with no experience whatsoever. It doesn't matter if we're adults or senior adults who think that our days are over with. It doesn't matter if we're men or women and what our society feels is powerful or not powerful. God is going to pour out his spirit on all people. In other words, we're not on our own anymore. When we were living in our evil, we were all alone. We were isolated. We were imprisoned. But now that we have been set free and forgiven because of our repentance for our sins and our evil, we are no longer alone. The God who has always been for us and who in Christ has been with us is now in us, fused to our DNA, filling our mind and our heart, our intentions, our affections, all of the things that we say and do, guided by the Holy Spirit who is in us, the fullness of God's resurrection power in us, one with us. I didn't hear any amens. Jesus succinctly sums up the entire scope of God's redemptive work throughout the long and sordid history of the human race. It's the story of human beings. Get this. The story of God's uh, redemptive work throughout the human race is the story of humans who are the embodiment of evil being transformed by resurrection power to become the embodiment of God. Do you get that? We who are the embodiment of evil, the personification of sin, by God's resurrection power are transformed to become the embodiment of God in the world. (laughs) That is nothing short of extraordinary. That is a turnaround story unlike anything else that's been told. You know, sometimes I worry, sometimes I wonder that uh, we kind of think about the Holy Spirit in terms of being uh, consumers. You know, we consume food, we consume services, we consume entertainment. Uh, Sometimes I'm afraid that we feel like we are consumers of the Spirit, that the Spirit came for my benefit. God provided the Holy Spirit just so I could feel good. In reality, the Holy Spirit has always been a means to an infinitely deeper end, an infinitely deeper purpose. Being filled with the Spirit is not the goal of our lives. Being reconciled to God and then being equipped by the filling of the Holy Spirit to lead others to God is the goal. This Holy Spirit filling might be the fourth of Jesus's four points in this sermon. But number three about being eyewitnesses, that's the real end. That's the purpose. We are filled with the Holy Spirit so that we might be God's ambassadors, God's commissioned evangelist to bring other people into this relationship with God. Or as the the Apostle Paul likes to say it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
he writes to this congregation, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Get that? He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That ministry is that God has reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's Paul's way of saying what Jesus said in this four-phrase sermon in the upper room. That's Paul's way of calling us to the deeper work of being saved and sanctified for the benefit of other people who need to be saved and sanctified. The people in our world may be blind to God and what he's doing. They may not think that he exists or they could care less about it. They may have come to the conclusion that he's irrelevant and oblivious and uninterested and impotent to do anything in our chaotic world. But because we are a people who know how to pray, we know differently, don't we? We know that that is not the God that we serve. That is not the God that wants the entire world to serve and worship him. We know differently because we're a people who know how to pray. We're in on the conversation. We're there when God is making plans. We're the ones that receive his call and his commission and his instructions and his moment-by-moment -moment guidance throughout the course of our days. We know that the work of God, the work begun at, begun at creation, which culminated in the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, is the work of turning those who were the embodiment of evil into the embodiment of God. As the embodiment of God, we are key agents in the ongoing reconciling work of God. We are partners in his redemptive work. We can't sit on the sidelines, sitting on our hands and expect God to do the heavy lifting in this ministry of reconciliation. He has in, involved us in this from the very day of Pentecost. That's what the deeper work of God is doing in the world right now. He's calling us to be his partners in the ministry of reconciliation. I wonder how deep have we allowed God to take us into this unbelievably good news? We just heard the story. Have we just memorized the facts? Or are we committed to the suffering and dying way of Jesus? Have we repented and embraced God's forgiveness for our evil? Are we 
transformed into his eyewitnesses by his grace and his grace alone? And have we sought and embraced the filling with the Holy Spirit of God for the purpose of being his ambassador and for no other reason? We've been praying all of our lives, perhaps, or since we first became a Christian. Certainly, we've been praying for the last few months as we've been working through this uh, sermon series. We've been praying for the last five weeks as part of the half million mobilization in the, the Nazarenes here in the, in, on uh, the North American continent. But have we been praying about Jesus' commission in our lives that we would be his ambassadors, we would be his partners in this ministry of reconciliation. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Lord, your ways are not our ways. Your ways are the ways of the cross and the grave. It's only on the other side of the cross and the grave that your way is resurrection power, new life-giving power. Lord, we thank you for inviting us to repent as the ones responsible for your death on the cross. You invite us to say, I'm sorry. You invite us to own our guilt. You invite us to repent of our sins and our sinfulness. And you offer us not vengeance, but forgiveness. You set us free from our sins and our sinfulness. And you invite us to be eyewitnesses. You invite us to tell our story. You invite us to proclaim from every mountaintop and every valley the truth of your amazing grace. And you fill us with your power and your purity, your Holy Spirit, so that we can do this effectively, that we can do this at all. Lord, on this Pentecost Sunday, we celebrate the, the way you bridged the languages and communicated the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who spoke all of those different languages. Lord, we thank you for tongues of flame and a mighty, powerful wind. But Father, this morning, I thank you on this Pentecost Sunday the most for the extraordinary trust that you show, that you demonstrate, the trust that you invite us into to be your partners in this ministry of reconciliation. Lord, we don't deserve that. And we're going to bungle it just as, as, as quickly and as thoroughly as the early disciples did. But Father, as we read through the book of Acts, we hear this extraordinary story of a ministry of reconciliation that, goed, that, that, that went from community to community, from town to city, from person to person and absolutely turned the Roman Empire upside down. Lord, our world needs to be turned upside down. Our world has come to the conclusion that you don't matter, but we know that to be not the case. 
Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. We pray that we would be able to put down deep, deep roots in our relationship with you, that we would know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we have been set free from our sins. We've been embraced and adopted into your family. We've been commissioned to be your partners, your sons, your daughters. Lord, don't ever ever let us to forget those powerful truths in this powerful sermon of Jesus. Four phrases long, but has the power to turn the world upside down for your glory. Lord, we want to be a part of that. As we leave this service, as we head into our week, no matter what it might hold, Lord, we commit to be your people doing things your way, putting you first in every conversation that we have. Thank you for teaching us how to pray. In Christ's name we pray, and all of God's children say, Amen.